You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. missed you guys. This is Danny Anderson uh, of Mount Aloysius College welcoming you to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. This hiatus has been really restful and I've gotten quite a bit done in terms of writing and, and uh, you know living my life and stuff, but I really do miss recording these shows and so uh, welcome back to the show. Um, I hope you've missed me as well, but uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this show today. Um, regular listeners of this show are used to us covering a wide variety of topics that bounce around generally speaking, religion, politics, pop culture, high culture. It's probably also painfully apparent, however, that I have a particular set of interests that I come back to frequently, and two of these are comics and horror. And it just so happens that my guest for this episode allows me to talk about both. Uh, joining me today is Sam Cowling. Uh, Sam, Dr. Cowling, excuse me, is associate professor at Denison University in Ohio. And in addition to a whole bunch of articles on philosophy, he has a really cool book called Abstract Entities, which I want to talk to him a little bit about, um, which unpacks the debate between Platonists and nominal when it comes to discussing abstract categories like numbers and notions like fragility that don't necessarily map onto concrete entities. Um, well, I saw Dr. Cowling present on the topic we're talking about today at that Bowling Green State University Batman conference back in the spring. And I contacted him um, afterwards, and he was really nice enough to come on the show to discuss what he did. So, Dr. Cowling, Dr. Cowling welcome. How are you doing today? Man, thanks for having me. Excited to, to chat with you. Good. Um, I'm very happy that you came. This is uh, probably the fifth episode <laughs> that I've recorded that's spun out of that um, Batman conference. It's been kind of this uh, uh, cornucopia of like, really great guests, and, and, and I'm really happy that you um, joined to that uh, joined that group. And I want to talk a little bit more about your presentation um, in a couple minutes. First, I just have a couple quick announcements, if you'll bear with me. Um, as you know, there is a, a new Patreon campaign um, that I'm rolling out during this hiatus. I appreciate if folks just checked it out, just head over to um, our Patreon page. If you go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com, there's a link directly there. If you listen to podcasts, you probably know where Patreon is and how to find things on it. Um, but if you go to it, you'll find some fun, fun behind the scenes access at a $3 level. Um, in addition to joining our Facebook group, which is a lot of fun, actually, it's a private group we have and we do all kinds of um, fun chit chat that isn't as censored as we have to be on the air. Uh, and it has a lot of influence on the show's direction as well. Um, and in addition, if you jump up to the $5 level, there's this, uh, whatever the audio equivalent of bonus footage is, um, you're going to get extra um, material from our podcast that other people aren't going to get for free. The rest of the show really won't sound any different from anybody for anybody else. If you don't want to give uh, no worries, just keep listening, keep enjoying, but keep talking back to me. But if you do, you get a couple little bonuses and there's some other things there too you can look at. Um, um, so I do want to kind of give you a heads up. Um, during the hiatus, I have been in conversation with lots of folks about um, topics that are going to be coming up. And so a couple of them that, to look out for down the road um, are Christian anarchism, sacred spaces, 
Taylor Swift and white girl liberalism, uh, Christian colleges, weird fiction, and tons more. Um, and in fact, just yesterday, some article, um, I think it was called Against Pop Culture, uh, came out on Mere Orthodoxy, I believe it was. And it got all sorts of um, feedback on our Facebook page when I shared it there. And within five minutes, three people asked me to do a show about it. <laughs> and so um, we'll probably be doing one of those very soon. Um, but there'll be tons more. And uh, most of the good ideas for the show come from you guys. Um, as listeners. So please um, let me know what you'd like me to talk about. Uh, right now we're talking about horror and comics though. So um, Dr. Cowling, before we get into the specifics here, and can I call you Sam? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'll do that. Yeah, we tend to be kind of informal on this show. Um, well, could you describe your interests and your work in general before we get into the specifics of this presentation? Yeah. And uh, it's, it's a little bit of an idiosyncratic um I guess background with respect to this stuff. So, you know, I, I'm a philosopher professor. I teach at this small arts college. I, I mostly um, work in sort of metaphysics and philosophy of science. So, like, weird questions about the sort of interpretation of scientific theories, questions about, like, the nature of possibility, you know, sort of, like, fun, broad metaphysical stuff. Um, and the really great thing about philosophy is it's ideally suited to, like, these hyper-pedantic weirdos. And um, that that vibe was sort of grilled into me at a very young age, reading, effectively learning to read uh, by way of comics. Okay. Um, so, yeah, over the last um, over the last couple of years, I've gotten a little more serious about thinking through and trying to write on stuff in comics. Um, I actually wrote, like, a paper on Batman, maybe, like, 2007, that's in, like, the Batman and Philosophy Reader when I was still a graduate student. Okay. Um but yeah, you know, over the last couple of years, I've been trying to write a few shorter papers. And um, right now I'm actually co-writing a book with my friend Wes Cray on philosophy of comics. So, yeah, um, somewhere like the nerddom of metaphysics meets the nerddom of like, comics and horror. Okay. Okay. Um, well, you actually um, just brought something up to my mind here. So you said you learned to read through comics. Uh, um, how did, like, what was your introduction to comics and why are they so important to you? Um. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think people when people utter that, they, they sometimes invite the idea like, wow, you were raised by wolves. What a <laughs> latchkey monster. It's like, no, my, I have perfectly good parents. They're thoughtful and kind people. Um, but I, I don't know if you're familiar with like the DC Who's Who, sort of definitive guide to the Mar uh, DC Universe. Oh, sure, yeah. Or the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. So these by far and away were my favorite comics as a child. Yeah, and now I realize it's like they're only marginally comics because <laughs> um, there's massive blocks of text accompanying sort of, um, you know, a few illustrations here and there. But like, I read and reread those things at a distressing pace um, and too many times as a kiddo. In fact, like my mom pulled out uh, there's an issue of the third edition of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe and I guess when I was like 10, I wrote in a letter demanding that they amend the Gambit uh, <laughs> entry because they failed to list his proficiency with a bow staff. It's like, if you're that kind of weird 10-year-old, the result, um, it, you know, it's not shocking that you end up doing metaphysics. I was just going to say, that's a perfect path to philosophy, right? Um, uh, that, that's hilarious. Um, and in fact, I'm in very much the same boat. I'm an English professor and uh, folks think that I grew up just sort of loving books or whatever. And it's totally not the case. I, I mean, I don't think I read anything except comics and Sherlock Holmes books or something. Uh, and 
I really don't remember reading much all the way through high school, frankly. And so um, the whatever high art uh, interests that I've developed over time uh, are almost incidental to my interest in, in um, kind of more popular pulpy culture. Right. And so, yeah. And, and I come from a background that is not at all academic um, by an easily first generation college student myself. And, um, and I read a sociological article oh, some time ago that many people who are in my boat uh who don't come from you know professor parents or that kind of background uh end up there through pop culture they either like really into rock music or something like that and um, um that interest kind of leads them uh into this more kind of cultured uh form of uh of, of artistic expression and so yeah i'm definitely in that boat there so it's funny how um you know when it's <laughs> when reading is sort of perceived as a general bonus and you get the kind of like um, I don't know, you're sort of like tracing the high and the joy of engaging this stuff. Yeah. Um, it's a big difference from having stuff that, you know, you sort of receive tepidly and feel like your reading is duty. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. If there's a commitment to it, it makes it a lot easier somehow. So um, anyway, so what about horror? Uh, like, how did you, uh, is horror just sort of a, uh, an incidental topic for you? Or is it something that's also kind of central to you as it is for me? I had this book that I got at the Scholastic Book Fair when I was a kid. Called oh, the, scary stories still in the dark. Well, no, not one of those. They had the movies coming out though. I saw the uh, that which looks amazing actually. No, there was a little. It was called just called Movie Monsters. Uh, this little orange covered book, and they had like old you know Universal characters on it. And uh, I must have read that thing ten thousand times. So I've always loved um, horror. Um, what about you? Oh yeah, I mean it's uh, it's funny when you start doing the kind of forensic. Um, I, don't know, I guess like memory deep dive about your engagement with your childhood library. Like, Oh my God. Yeah. I, I would just keep rereading these kind of like, um, hardback trade publications about like the history of werewolf movies and stuff. I mean, it's, yeah, I, it, it's, it's always been there. And, you know, um, for me, one thing that sort of emerges kind of interesting is, you know, um, pretty much everything I've published, um, over the last, I guess, 10 or so years has been in mainstream analytic philosophy um, and so starting to think a little bit more, um, substantively concretely with a, with an eye towards actually, uh, maybe contributing to the sort of debate about this stuff, um, has, has been interesting and weird, um, bringing together the kind of like intellectual vocation stuff with the delightful avocation of, of horror. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So, um, in this sort of book on philosophy comics, I'm bringing a chapter on horror comics and, um, what that sort of means. But yeah, I, I, I love it. I, We've been running a horror movie marathon for the last three years here at Denison that they let me, um, they actually give me money to do, which is my <laughs> Oh, I mean, I would love an invite to that someday. I have to say yeah, it's, 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 it's right up my alley. I teach a class on horror films here and uh, it's one of my favorite things to do. And, and so, yeah, um, oh. I'm also the club advisor for the paranormal club. And so I'm trying to find ways to mix this. Um, uh, and so, yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll talk off air maybe about that. Um, but uh, yeah, I, and I have to say another big love of mine was kind of the campy old movies. Um, in, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, as I mentioned um, before air. And we had a really famous uh, like late night monster movie uh, show, uh, Big Chuck. Well, first it was, uh, what was it called? Goulardi um, before I was born. And then Goulardi was a guy named... Um, 
uh, Ernie Anderson, and he moved out to L.A. and became like the voice of ABC tonight on ABC. And his son is actually Paul Thomas Anderson, the director. Um, but but uh, um, Goulardi show was taken over by Big Chuck and Houlihan, which uh, they were my uh, kind of childhood heroes. And so I grew up every Friday night was dedicated to staying up till three in the morning watching um cheeky old horror films on big chuck and Houlihan, and then later big chuck and little john but uh but yeah it was uh, a big part of my childhood and yeah um maybe it's good maybe it's bad but i have never outgrown that i don't know so um anyway so um yeah i love to tell that ernie anderson story by the way <laughs> no one um anyway um so uh you used i remember the in the Bit. I actually came in like about two minutes into your presentation, but I remember uh, in the, the beginning bit of your presentation, you were referencing Noel Carroll's um, The Philosophy of Horror, which um, I have read and I, I love that book. And it really gives a lot of really nice categories um, to be able to discuss how horror kind of functions. Um, and he's very much like a continental sort of uh, old school analytic pillar. I mean, he's American, right? But but he's not like this is not like French philosophy, right? This is no, uh, this is like analytic philosophy in its uh, in its finest. And um, so, what of Carroll's work um, are you using in your analysis of how horror films or horror horror as a genre intersects with superhero uh, comics? Yeah, great. Um, so maybe I'll say. Um let me start with like the general puzzle and then I'll say a little bit about um, how I think about sort of Carol's view about the nature of horror. Okay. Um, so, so here's something that's kind of, well, there's this general puzzle about comics, right? You, they're a sequential art form um, by and large. Um, they're produced over time, often by bucket loads of people that are these massively collaborative undertakings. And so one general puzzle that arises for comics is if you think about genres as buckets, how do you take sequential art forms and locate them in the genre buckets? And so one thing you might say is like, well, the entire series has to go into the bucket. And that doesn't seem quite right. We can think of sort of sporadic, um, you know, comics that sort of bounce around from genre to genre, maybe moving from a Western to a mystery and what have you. Um, so maybe the more natural thought here is something like issues or story arcs, um, maybe even like, I, I think it's probably stretches the idea of genre to talk about a panel being like a horror panel. Um, but uh, one general thought here is that you've got this genre, let's talk about it as a genre, sort of superhero comic. Mm -hmm. And there's a wealth of things to be said about what makes something a superhero comic. But here's a weird feature of the kind of history of superhero comics, or at least their kind of general reception is, why are there so few superhero comics that we would incline to also drop in the horror bucket? Right? Um, I, I think this just stands out as a kind of, once you sort of realize, like, oh yeah, there are very few and given the kind of affinity between them, sort of like their spookiness, weirdness, the sort of like broadly fantastical character, like shouldn't there be more? Um, so it emerges this kind of surprising question. So what this comes to do is start thinking about the Noel Carroll stuff. And I love the Carroll book. I think it constitutes one of the sort of great recent works in aesthetics because it's so clear, it's so aimed at tracking a bunch of problems. Uh, and it does a couple things. Um, so one thing that's engaged with is this kind of paradox of horror stuff. So that, that's not kind of our focus here, but for those that might not be super familiar with it, it's just this idea, here's three claims. Um, uh, horror movies cause fear. Fear is intrinsically unpleasant. Um, same with disgust. Disgust and fear, as we'll see, are pretty closely connected. Like nobody's like excited to go stare at dog feces. <laughs> uh, chase disgust. Nor do we 
tweet Shakespeare, except maybe outside of the context of horror movies. And then here's the third claim. People are reliable in their judgment that by attending horror films, they're going to experience fear. So you've got this kind of practical puzzle. Why are people chasing a thing that's intrinsically unpleasant? So um, there's a wealth of philosophical views about this. And the puzzle actually goes back to Hume, who talks about this in the kind of the paradox of tragedy. Why do we read these sort of um, novels that are or sort of fictions that are so stirring and leave us lovelorn and, and sad and devastated? Um, but Carol has a kind of interesting answer to this paradox of horror. And this is what uh, pushes us towards this kind of theory of monsters. So, um, and feel free to just uh, tap me out at any point. Uh, so the, a critical piece of any horror fiction for Carol, and horror is this genre category that cross, cross, cuts across media, is that it has to have a monster. Um, and we, we can talk more about monsters in a bit, uh, but it has to have a monster. What's more, our interest in the nature of this monster as a kind of violation of the sort of what we take to be possible spurs a kind of interest or thirst for understanding or knowledge in us. And what happens is um, there's this generation of two critical emotions, according to Carol, in our engagement for fear and disgust. So in a sort of what constitutes an instance of the horror genre, you've got a monster that's generating fear and disgust in the audience. And Carol's like, yeah, fear and disgust are unpleasant. We don't want to feel afraid. We don't want to feel disgusted. Um, but we'll abide the intrinsic unpleasantness of those emotions because monsters are so interesting. So we've got these kind of three moving pieces. We've got the sort of Carol on monsters. We've got the fear and disgust part. And then we've got this kind of seeking to overcome the intrinsic unpleasantness of fear and disgust because we're interested. So that's the general shape of the Carol account. Um, yeah. And so, and that's um, opens up um, a lot of categories for him to discuss the various types of monsters and that kind of thing. So he opens up a really great um, kind of categorization of um, how to define horror and how to kind of place aspects or if not entire horror films into particular buckets so that we can sort of understand how they relate to one another. Right. And what's interesting um, about what you're doing is you're sort of using that as, as a way to relate horror to um, comics. Right. Um, and particularly the presentation I saw was about Batman. And if ever there were a superhero that seems real amenable to horror, it would seem to be Batman, uh, like in, in many ways, right? I mean, um, fright and terror is built into the DNA of that character, right? And so um, you want to talk a little bit about your arguments about Batman and horror? Sure. So, so um, yeah, it's kind of this. So James Wan uh, actually has this kind of interesting quote. Um, so director of Aquaman, mm -hmm. uh, various I guess Saw was one of the Fast and Furious, maybe two. I don't know. <laughs> In the past, most people, like most people, I love the idea of directing Batman, but a horror version of Batman. That would be a potential fantasy of mine, but I feel like he's been done quite a fair bit. But I do love the idea of doing an outright scary Batman. I feel like that'd be really cool. And, and you're exactly right. There's this fear and terror, this idea of like striking terror to the heart of evildoers, which sort of permeates um batman narratives uh we see characters like the scarecrow popping up all over the place and invariably sort of inducing fear in in characters and you know we just got a sort of range of monsters so um it, it's clear that if we think that carol's definition of monsters is right there's monsters all over the place in batman you got Clayface, you got man bat personal favorite uh killer croc 
And, and here's actually kind of an important feature for, for Carol. Um, Carol's inclined to say that Superman, Wonder Woman, Martian Manhunter, all those characters are in fact monsters. Mm. So he has this kind of broad conception of what constitutes a monster. So for, Monster for Carol, roughly speaking, um, is something that um, is impossible. Um, ends up being really difficult to parse what that means, and we can imagine sort of fictional worlds that are sort of slightly adjacent to the actual world where our notions of possibility and possibility become kind of permeable. But uh, the big idea here is that um, even while, so story, according to guess what? It's not a horror. Uh, it's not a horror comic. It's not a horror film. So monsters on their own aren't sufficient. What it takes to make something into a horror film is critically this pointed um, direction of fear and disgust at the monster. Mm. So you're, you're reading a Superman comic and you're like, oh my God, this remarkable, impossible being is doing all these things, but no character in that comic feels fear and disgust towards Superman. Um, you know, maybe a little bit of fear, <laughs> um, but disgust is even, even sort of stranger. So turning back to sort of Batman, well, we've got sort of themes about fear and terror all over the place. Um, so you'd sort of think, it's like, oh my goodness, this is just right for being uh, an instance of the horror genre. The, the way in which I think it sort of... Um, Typically, Fall Short suggested a kind of failure, but the, the main idea here is that we just don't end up with instances of horror genre in Batman because of, well, this is the sort of philosophical question. Why are we getting all these near misses? Why is it the case that you've got fear, uh, you've got monsters, but we have so few Batman horrors? And so there's kind of two routes of explanation. And if you like Carol, one thing you're interested in doing is seeing whether you can use the kind of Carol machinery to explain why we have so few of these horror superhero crossovers. And there's actually a pretty, um, I think, direct pattern of explanation here. So when Carol talks about how you generate that fear and disgust, um, he offers these great examples drawn from literature and film, but maybe the literature ones are even better. When he talks about um, Bram Stoker's Dracula, the characters uh, revulsing and, and um, drawing back from Dracula, or the sort of um, the sort of grossness of Frankenstein. Everybody sort of feels this kind of revolting um, revulsion. And so what it, um, the kind of central cue for generating the fear and disgust that Carol thinks is critical to the horror genre is that there's some focal character, some proxies for the reader that we attend to and we're kind of sympathizing with. And we riff on how they're feeling. And that's what generates the fear and disgust for us. But now, who's the focal character in Batman? Freaking Batman. Yeah. <laughs> you know who's never really afraid of anything? Batman. Yeah. Um, and even more strikingly, you know, Batman's never really disgusted in the sense that Carol intends disgust. I mean, we, we find him sort of perennially let down or disappointed or frustrated. I mean, moral disgust and sort of the kind of primal disgust that Carol uh, has in mind are a little bit different here, but it is, you think about Batman, you're ne if he's always a sort of focal character, you're never going to get into the right state that's going to generate the kind of horror, instance of a horror genre that Carol has in mind. So, yeah. Um, and that's very interesting. And I think as you're talking, um, I wonder if this is kind of what one of the things, at least, that Alan Moore plays around with when he kind of deconstructs superheroes is I think he does 
pick up on the monstrosity of, of a superhero and actually makes them monsters and <laughs> makes monsters out of them. Um, and, and I want, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? That just sort of popped into my head here. Yeah. I, it's, um, you know, it, it's funny to think about, um, think about like, uh, Kirby and Lee's Galactus and think about the first Godzilla film and think about that kind of awe that projects over the kind of horizon as you see these sort of towering figures and, you know, you, you flip the page, you're like, ah, um, the fear is there, the awe is there. But this is, you know, a sort of interesting point. You can sort of imagine the sort of fear and awe that you sort of uh, orient yourself towards Godzilla or Galactus. I think more riffs on that a lot. You think about the sort of Miracle Man stuff, maybe most pointedly, I mean, Swamp Thing is probably the work that abuts yeah. the sort of superhero horror genre most closely, but... Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, you're, there's a deep and powerful thread in superhero comics that activates this idea of, like, these are horrifying things to behold. Yeah. Um, and one thing I think emerges is kind of interesting. I think, you know, when we think about horror, we think about fear primarily. I really do think that the disgust part plays actually a surprisingly important role. Okay. Um, I think that, you know, we wouldn't want to call Galactus... Uh, I mean, monster isn't the most natural thing to call Galactus because he's not sort of disgusting. Yeah. Um, and there's this weird sense in which I've been watching a lot of um, kaiju and Godzilla films uh, with my five-month-old. And, <laughs> and, you know, as you sort of move through, like, the sort of Toho Godzilla series, you realize, like, ah, Godzilla's not disgusting anymore. <laughs> and it's one of those weird feelings where you start thinking, like, ah, this doesn't feel like a horror film at all anymore, even though there's this monster, this object of proper fear. Yeah, I actually just saw the recent Godzilla yesterday. Uh, yeah. And, and it's, so it's it's interesting that you're talking about it. So I've actually been thinking about Godzilla. And I was actually going back to um, they revitalized the uh, oxygen destroyer uh, from, yeah. the, from the initial, the Gojira, uh, the yeah. kind of the progenitor of all these shows, uh, of these movies. And, um, and I was thinking about Gojira. And that movie even, Godzilla – it's almost an occasion to mourn more than it is to be disgusted by. Right. And, and so I wonder if Godzilla ever really was a monster, like in, in, the, in Carol's terms here then. Yeah. It's, um, I was actually thinking about this other week. So I, um, I recently watched and I can't recommend this highly enough. Godzilla versus Hedera, the, the smog monster. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, mid seventies. So it's bizarre in all the ways you sort of, there's weird animated interludes and, um, <laughs> It's lovely. Peter is actually kind of gross. Um, I, I do think the first Gojira, that there's this ambient sense of disgust. I think everybody's kind of grossed out by the sort of failing civil society, the sort of failure to like engage with what's happened. Um, we also see, um, I forget who gets kind of mutilated, um, but there's a sort of disgust is kind of in the air yeah. around us at the sort of like, breakdown of society um but not so much towards godzilla like i think you're right and, and uh, there's like i think they feel bad for killing godzilla at the end of that movie i mean we actually mourn his death um to the oxygen destroyer or whatever that device is i think and um and yeah and i i it's been a while since i've seen that but i do believe you see like bones and that kind of thing so you do get some of the disgust but it's almost 
oriented towards creating sympathy um, for the monster in that case. So I think in a lot of ways, Godzilla would map onto sort of the Frankenstein template. Um, he's sort of a creation of ours that has come back to kind of haunt us a little bit. Um, and so, um, and we kind of don't fear him as much as we, f- while we fear him, we also feel bad for him. Right. And, and, um, and, and I think that that's kind of a, uh, a common thing that between Godzilla and, and in this movie, he's sort of the hero of the movie, obviously the new one that's just come out. Um, he's, you know, they try to resurrect him and all that <laughs> because he's, he's the only one that can save us. Right. And so he becomes superhero. And so it is another it's instance. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, it is another, uh, another case in which that, um, the being a hero kind of precludes one from being a monster uh, on some level. Um, yeah, that, that's very interesting. Um, I loved all those Godzilla movies growing up too. That was the other thing growing up in Cleveland on Saturday afternoon. So big Chuck, big Chuck was on Friday night, Saturday afternoon. We had super host, this guy dressed like a clown with Superman. Uh, and, uh, and he would always do like the Japanese, uh, monster movies and stuff. So I, I grew up watching those as well. So, um, yeah, fun stuff. Um, can I, um, if you are familiar, I was in my comic, my local comic shop the other day and I was going, they had like a 50% off back issues sale. And so I was just going through the back issues <laughs> and I, I just found, uh, there was like a six part series called Batman and Superman versus vampires and werewolves or something like that. Have you heard of this before? No. It was, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years old. And I actually just picked it up and I haven't even opened them yet. Um, and so I don't even know what it's about, but it was so interesting. And I saw that because we had already been in a uh, conversation about this, this, uh, um, uh, this show. And so I'm wondering like how, even when they import monsters like man bat, you brought up man bat into a superhero uh, story, you would argue that it usually ceases being horror, um, even though they're they're monsters, right? Uh, and and I think I'm wondering if that's what's going to happen with this, but it's an occasion to ask the question um, in general about how even when a Batman brings Man Bat, who is by yeah. any definition a monster, right, um, into the uh, into the story. Batman's presence or the 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 presence of the superhero genre precludes necessary elements of horror. Uh, do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, look, um, it's important not to, uh, let me be clear that the idea that I'm articulating sort of like deep metaphysical truths about the structure of immutable genres is not like, right. <laughs> um, to try and systematically understand these works. Like, yeah, I, I think that's right. I think there's this kind of an internal friction between these two genres so um here's a couple examples so there's a batman 250 it's like an awesome neil adams werewolf issue um and it's got dr milo is so batman bruce wayne's got a friend who ends up becoming a a a werewolf and dr milo this by way of dr milo giving a serum um and it reads as a more or less typical issue of a of a superhero comic Mm. and there's disgust in there so at one point the sort of werewolf character turns on dr milo and dr milo is, is terrified but again, this is kind of like a point in Carol's favor. Dr. Milo is not the proxy uh, for the audience. He's not the kind of uh, the individual whom we're going to have kind of sympathetic fictional engagement with. Like, he's a bad guy. So if he's disgusted, we're kind of like, yeah. Meanwhile, Batman is, you know, um, untroubled by the presence of this werewolf. Um, so again, it's like, yes, there's clearly this monster running around and there's stakes. But there's nothing that marks the kind of emotional engagement that you'd expect from canonical instances of fiction. 
Um, here's a sort of second example. And one thing that was really fun in getting ready for that Batman conference was just reading a wealth of like old Batman stuff. So Batman 8 um, has this straightforward mad scientist kind of um, uh, monster tale about Professor Radium, who was exposed to um, you know radium in a shocking turn of sort of nuclear paranoia. Um, he becomes this, you know, awful killing machine. Individuals sort of die at his touch. He loses his mind and starts saying, like, I need to touch everyone so everybody can die, yada, yada. Um, and eventually is killed. Now, if you excised all of the Batman parts from the narrative, you would read that as a pretty crummy horror comic. But because Batman is interspersed along with Robin at various junctures, you see him as, an, you know, as a thing to be dealt with, not a thing to be drawn away from um, in the way that kind of horror requires. So there's this weird way in which if you want an individual that would sort of deem to be a superhero, you're generating this kind of focal character that's always just going to leave you um, with not quite the right feelings that horror as a genre demands for you. That, that, that's what I would think it is. And I think it really works. And as, as you're talking, especially about werewolves, that's kind of my favorite monster. <laughs> Like anybody yeah. who listens to this show knows I love werewolves. <laughs> but the thing, the academic thing that I'm most proud of having written is this analysis of an American werewolf in London um, as this as a Jewish assimilation nightmare. It's sort of my my reading of it, um, and so that's my uh, it's my favorite thing I've ever written as an academic. Um, and so um, uh, the the movie Underworld is an interesting one. I I really actually like that movie. But I, and I've seen it many times, um, but I don't, I have a really hard time understanding it as a horror film. Like it doesn't really work as a horror film, right? Even though it's got blood drinking vampires, you've got the grotesque transformation scenes, you've got mutilations, everything that should be, that are recognizable as horror tropes. The movie itself doesn't work as a horror film. And I'm wondering now, listening, talking to you, if it's because it's really a superhero story. <laughs> so, great question. I mean, <laughs> I got a lot of hot takes on the Underworld series. Um, so, here's one thing that's maybe most striking about Underworld. It's like, it's the most dour and humorless, humorless fictional universe ever generated. <laughs> so, without saying that it's a superhero story, you've already got the makings of an explanation of why it would fall short of being horror. There's no emotionality whatsoever in it, except for a sort of contrived conflict. Nobody feels anything. So as a sort of audience member, you're just sort of like, ah, I am to be left cold by this. That is a really good point. It's like there's this was in a world really worth saving anyway. <laughs> so, so who cares? It's always raining in blue everywhere we go, right? And so yeah. um, <laughs> that's a really good point. Um, uh, so yeah, from, from the outset, um, that is a necessary feature of horror then. Nothing is at risk really um, for the audience. There's no sort no stakes. Um, okay, that's one part. And But even Celine, the, the sort of main vampire character of that, um, like her, I mean, she is... Um, a monster, but the way vampires, I guess the, 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 the movie world creates such a, a society out of them right, that yeah. it doesn't seem weird almost kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Carol does a few black flips here because what he also wants to avoid doing is saying that there are monsters throughout, um, worlds of kind of fantasy. Okay. Um, so plainly it's the case that like Gollum is a, um, so let's just ride with like Lord of the Rings as a sort of running example. Um, there's monsters and there's objects 
to words you, to which you feel like fear and disgust in Lord of the Rings, like the ring race and stuff like that. Sure. It's disinclined, I think, to describe those as instances of horror because in those worlds, those are perfectly possible sorts of beings. Um, now, the weirdness of Underworld is I think once you start imputing this huge amount of super Baroque mythology and you steep it all in this, like there's one human character who's kind of the weird feature of it. Um, so th there's maybe a case that it's um, – so Carol's got this kind of argument, which in effect says fantasy kind of pushes out horror in some of the ways that sort of like superhero and I claim horror push against one another. So you might say that um, in that kind of way, the underworld sort of uh, stuff pushes out horror because it's so um, fantastical. Yeah. Um, that works for me, actually. I, I've always like that's one of the movies that people ask me about guilty pleasures. It's like a movie that I know is not good, but I still enjoy watching. Right. And, and I don't know why. Um, but I, but I've never considered it really a horror film. It's it's at best an action movie. Right. And so um, and I think this has actually helped me understand why it doesn't work as a horror film at all. Um, and so, yeah, that's great. Um, can we do you, so you mentioned earlier, um, if you let me backtrack just a second, um, you're working on an article about horror comics. Um, and so there is a tradition of legit horror comics, the great EC titles um, from back in the day. And, and they get revived every now and then um, in contemporary forms. Um, um, and so, uh, but there is a way in which comic books can carry horror stories. Uh, so it's it's sort of like you want to make a distinction between superhero comics and comics in general, right? Do you want to talk a little bit maybe about what you're thinking with uh, horror comics? Yeah, you know, um, there's – I mean, one of the more interesting things is um, – yeah, you know, um, I'm deeply interested in the sort of history of horror comics and – uh, and so sort of with various ways in which they kind of bump up against one another in, in part because I am really interested in this kind of like superhero horror tension mm -hmm. um, you know when I teach my uh, philosophy comics class we end up sort of spending a lot of time on this sort of comics code authority and sort of the questions about censorship and really how deleterious is it to expose young people to stuff but one thing I'm really interested in is yeah again I guess to return to this sort of superhero horror tension is there's some really amazing comics um, that maybe defy either of these labels in a direct way. So I really, um, you know, I teach Doom Patrol a lot. I think really highly of that work. There are moments of genuine fear and disgust sprinkled throughout uh, the Morrison run. Mm -hmm. You start looking at these, uh, you know, these sort of bizarre bodies like Crazy Jane and, and Robot Man and Rebus and these kind of, um, all these ways of being mutilated. Similarly with sort of Swamp Thing. I mean, I, obviously the sort of like 72 Ween and Wrights in Swamp Thing is, a kind of loving homage to the old EC stuff. Um, but then once you get to this sort of more era, you've got this sort of weird amalgam of, again, some like sort of classic horror genre tropes, like a great werewolf story in there. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But you also see him in sort of fictional worlds bumping up against Batman and it's, it's dizzying. Um, yeah. Yeah. I want to get into the swamp thing in a second. And actually you brought up doom patrol, uh, just as a, an alert to listeners for another future episode. Um, someone has asked me to do an episode on doom patrol down the road. So that, um, that is, uh, on, on the list. So if you're interested in that, um, I actually got the DC universe 
subscription so that I could watch Swamp Thing. Um, and while I have it, I've been watching Titans and I haven't started Doom Patrol yet. I just finished Titans. So, um, but Doom Patrol does show up in one of the Titans episodes. Awesome. And so yeah, I'm very interested in, uh, in reading those comics. So, um, um, another comic that's recent is Joe Golem. Have you been, have you, are you been following Joe Golem? Um, yeah. it's pretty interesting. They're, they come out in these little mini series. And so once a year, there'll be three or four, maybe three to six issue little run mini runs. Um, and so it's a kind of an interesting thing, but you have this, um, kind of, uh, invocation of a Jewish, you know, folk tradition of the Golem being, um, empowering this kind of, noir type detective on supernatural mysteries in the modern world. And so it's kind of an interesting um, little vignette story that does kind of successfully, I think, marry horror and, and superhero comics. But um, that's all kind of a prelude to um, an- another recent one uh, was Captain Cronus. It's an old Hammer film, an old Hammer uh, vampire film, Captain Captain Cronus Vampire Hunter. They did a miniseries uh, comic version of it, uh, continuing the story, and it was really good, actually. Uh, I wish they'd done more, but um, but nonetheless, another diet, another uh, you know tangent on my part there. Um, but the, uh, the the one thing I do want to talk about right now, it seems like we are in a moment where people are intentionally trying to blur these lines like the the dc universe swamp thing series i don't know if you've seen any of it um it is a full-on horror like um in form and content and it works as um i mean i've seen about half of it so far that it gets released weekly and the swamp thing himself is kind of like a distant figure he's not the central to the storyline and so it's people bouncing up against horrific things like human beings and so i think that's one reason it does work as horror uh as well as being a superhero so swamp thing since alan moore took it over you're right i think does really blur the line between horror um and and superhero comics in interesting ways and brightburn um i have i didn't get a chance to see brightburn sadly it, it exited theaters before but the concept is a fascinating one though isn't it um the the uh what if superman were a psychopath right <laughs> as an eight-year-old boy i mean i it's an interesting question if you had so i haven't seen either contending with this like she would have been three months old uh, rocked out so i've been kind of off scary kid movies for a little bit, but it's kind of like, look, what if you put a cape on Damien in the omen? Yeah. How does that signify something notably different? I mean, there's, that's a good question. I mean, maybe there's this kind of superhero anxiety that's importantly different than sort of anxiety about the antichrist. Um, yeah, I, um, no, I, I think that there's, Maybe it's like returns this idea. Like I, I'm puzzled by why there's so few of these sort of superhero horror crossovers. And I, you know, if my explanation I gave earlier is right. There's a kind of explanation, but um, what that doesn't explain is like why people aren't trying harder to riff on exactly that friction and that kind of interface. And you're right to like note all these kind of cool examples. Um, Al Ewing's uh, Immortal Hulk run. I'm, right? I'm reading that right now. It's great. Yeah. Fantastic, yeah. and it's it's gross and horrifying, and um, I, I think it's probably not a superhero comic anymore. <laughs> um, but it's the kind of thing that's um, really hitting that. You know, and we've seen it, you know movies that abut this sort of area too, um, and and the sort of corresponding comics. So, you know, the first Blade film I think is maybe an interesting kind of 
case at the intersection there. Yeah, let's pause on that um, because that is, I think, a movie that has held up really well. I, I watch Blade about once a year and I, it never gets old to me. Um, the second one as well. The third one I haven't seen but the one time, but um, <laughs> it's a kind of a disappointment. <laughs> but uh, but the, the first two, I think, work really well both as superhero and horror films. And, and I mean, some of it is certainly the the way in which Blade does have a human part to him, right? Um, that is at risk. And, and he does have human, I mean, it has human, he has human beings around him who are in danger to, of, from the vampire. So there are, there is that proxy that's necessary for us to sort of um, feel the fear um, that we're supposed to fear um, or feel. And so, I mean, that's one reason. Are there other reasons you think that Blade works as a horror film? Um, that's the question. I mean, there may be in part thinking about how underworld leaves us kind of cool because it embeds us in this kind of Baroque fantasy, almost fantasy like mythology. One thing that's nice about blade is that you have him as a kind of, if you envision the sort of vampire world as this kind of realm of fantasy. And so they don't feel like sort of deep objects of, of, of fear and disgust, except maybe in the second one with the dude whose face opens up. Yeah. Blade himself ends up becoming kind of doubly a monster insofar as, you know, he's, both a violation of the sort of natural order as we would take in our actual world, but in that fictional world, he's sort of a violation of the natural world twice over because he's the daywalker. So there's this kind of, he's sort of resolutely monstrous in that world. Um, yeah, I, I kind of read the first, I, I would be inclined to say that the first one is more of an action film, but the second one has pretty robust horror moments. I think it's gross and bloody in ways that the, the Norrington one isn't quite. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true. The the Reaper strain vampires um, from yeah. the second movie um, do really kind of ramp up the horror element. Those little uh, walks through the sewer that they do are kind of actually scary. Um, and, and, and and so yeah, there is a there is a way in which it draws on uh, the sort of language, I guess, of horror. Uh, that I guess you're probably right. The first one less so. But I do think that um, oh gosh the the act Brad Dorf or no not Brad Dorf that's Chucky uh, the other uh, Stephen uh, Dorf is that his name yeah um, I thought he does a really good job uh, yeah. of of being a scary villain right uh, in that in that world and so um, yeah so that actually is a good explanation and any chance to talk about Blade is a is something I'll, I'll pick up so I really do love those people talk about the the superhero like renaissance or whatever the, the the kind of golden era of superhero movies and they kind of look at like spider-man the original spider-man or maybe the x-men is when those started but blade came before both of those <laughs> and, I, and i think it did it i think it really set a great standard for i think it's an underappreciated movie so oh i, I could agree more it's neat i mean I, I think you're right to hit on the sewer scene is maybe what marks the a real kind of apparent a real sort of genre divide between one and two because one is sort of situated in like mansions and raves and these kind of pristine physical spaces, which are not optimal for generating anything like disgust. But you yeah. know, the horror sticks you in all these gross places, covers everybody in blood all the time. Yeah. Um, have you read much about, um, you know, from Julia Kristeva and on the abject and, and that sort of thing? I That is like one thing that she really focuses on. And this hap- this comes up a lot in discussing like werewolves, especially. Um because you have, especially body, any kind of body horror, um, sort, sort of horror film in which, um, the borders 
of the self get compromised, right? And so the transformation scene for an American werewolf in London oh, is yeah. a really prime example of body horror because it's the, the very notion of what makes a person human being uh, in the, the physical form just breaks down and gives way to this monstrous thing that comes out of it. Um, and her ideas about the abject in general are, you know, those are spaces outside of the the of civilization she draws a lot on lacan and that sort of thing and so the abject is where we have to send all of our poop and <laughs> you know all the things that um we can't live in and still feel human we have to send it somewhere else and so the sewer is like you know almost a a, a archetypal archetypical um abject space and so that's a perfect place to um to locate a, a horror narrative i think in that way um, yeah, and I think too, it's just like um, the sort of precursors to the sort of superhero renaissance that also um, ride the sort of horror genre. Like Raimi's Darkman is, it, it's kind of shocking that that hasn't come under sort of close or critical scrutiny because, I mean, there's a way, a real sense in which it's kind of taking Hunchback and Family Opera, jamming them together with some grotesquerie. And you've got this, I mean, it, it's kind of pitched to you as the superheroic thing, but it's absolutely gross. That is really true. I actually I had forgotten about Darkman. I hadn't seen that for so long, and and it doesn't it doesn't get brought up even. It doesn't get pushed in my streaming service you know feed very often. And so I, I had forgotten. But I think you're totally right about that. And Sam Raimi's an interesting character because there are even there are moments in the second Batman or excuse me Spider Man movie um, that he did with Doctor Octopus that he's clearly going back to Evil Dead cinematography. Right <laughs> when Doc Ock's arms first come yeah. alive when he's on the <laughs> Uh, operating table there's the the floor cam i mean everything that he used to do um he incorporates back into that that one there are moments in that movie that he's clearly um using horror uh you know tropes and schemes to um to invoke certain emotional responses and and yeah he's another and his drag me to hell that he followed up um after he was done with um, spider-man is i think a really underrated and and Love wonderful it. movie yeah um, yeah, Sam Raimi is definitely someone we should talk about there. Um, well, I, I want to talk to um, this Sam, uh, Sam Cowling, <laughs> for a, a little bit longer about horror in particular. But I'm going to save that for folks who subscribe um, to, on, on Patreon. So um, uh, for everybody else, I'm, I'm hoping you enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot about um, comics and horror and Batman and the way in which he is and is not a, sort of a horror figure. Um, and I want to talk. I want to shift to a little bit more um, just talking a little bit more about contemporary horror and, and what it's doing and why it's kind of um, a big thing right now. But that'll be uh, like a bonus uh, episode for uh, folks who subscribe on Patreon. For everybody else, I want to really thank you for listening. Um, let me know what you think about the show. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook and all those places. Of course, the, the website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com. And uh, for everybody else, just hang on and uh, the show will continue. <laughs>